Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. And this week we have a, a guest who's been with us uh, numerous times in the past, and that would be uh, the Reverend Bruce Stanley, who is the president and chief executive officer of the Methodist Home for Children. He is in his 13th year in that capacity. And uh, as Bruce will probably uh, elaborate more on in just a few moments, the Methodist Home for Children dates back to 1899. And at that time was a traditional campus-based orphanage, but now it is a community-based service for children and families throughout North Carolina. And uh, of course, no longer has the traditional campus-based orphanage as its main function. So Bruce, welcome back to the program. And uh, uh, we are always glad to hear from you because you are such a, uh, a great advocate for children and their welfare. Well, thank you, Don. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, you know, we, uh, I guess we probably open up because we are in this rather strange time in our existence, the strangest that any of us can all remember, and that is the COVID-19 pandemic situation. How has that affected uh, the Methodist Home for Children and all of its work? These are truly unprecedented times. Uh, and we have probably not been as impacted or affected as some other entities have. Uh, among other things, uh, we operate 14 residential programs uh, that are, as you indeed indicated, community-based. Twelve of those are for the Division of Juvenile Justice and operated uh, with a partnership and the Department of Public Service. So those are regarded not really uh, simply as essential services, but as mandatory services. And so in those residential programs that we've operated, uh, we did not miss a beat. And we traditionally have stringent cleaning protocols in place anyway uh, to deal with things such as tuberculosis, uh, scabies, lice, and uh, routine cases of the flu that you would encounter uh, in any residential program. And so those services have continued unabated. The children continue to come and the uh, staff continue to serve. And we really have done a um, a remarkable job, I think, at maintaining safety there. In fact, um, you could probably argue that the children who are in those residences are safer from COVID than they would be if they were out in community or in almost any other location. One of the places that has impacted us and other agencies is with regard to foster care. And the children continue to come, of course, and be presented into the system. Uh, but we have foster parents who are trained and licensed, uh, many of them in their 60s, and they have understandably been reticent to accept somebody into their home and have them there 24 hours a day, uh, afraid that they might themselves uh, contract COVID. And so if you've got a foster family where they have somebody uh, with some underlying conditions, um, that becomes a challenge. And so we have had uh, a, a difficult time uh, maintaining census uh, because of that. And we look forward to the day, the day when that evens out and is ameliorated. And we are continuing to train foster families and anyone uh, within the sound of my voice, if you had interest in being a foster parent, we would love for you to contact our website and, uh, and explore that great and beautiful ministry. Uh, the work that we do in-home with family preservation and family reunification uh, has continued, but has changed drastically because the rules and regulations want to protect the families and don't want in-person visits. And so we've been doing um, 
doing that uh, through means such as uh, WebEx, uh, Zoom, and Skype. And that has changed the nature of that service very much. And then the last place is early childhood. And we did close our two early childhood programs, the Jordan Center and the Barbara H. Curtis Center, for a brief period of time while we did cleaning and made sure everybody isolated for 14 days. We then reopened with a smaller population just to serve children of essential workers. But really, since July, we have been open again and are going full steam and are now back to our original census. And the biggest change that has occurred at both of those early childhood programs is that we are now offering kindergarten. And we had so many parents who were stressed and struggling trying to do their own jobs from home and care for their children that they prevailed upon us uh, to go ahead and offer an, a kindergarten and extend one more year. So we now have kindergarten operating in those two locations. And that's a long answer. Well, it is a long answer, but it's a it's a big problem, and uh, it sounds like that uh, you have uh, uh, been able to maintain most of the services and uh, do a good job. You know, you you brought up the word early childhood. Define the word early childhood and why it's so important that we focus on uh, correcting the problems that uh, are faced by children in their early childhood. And and we insist on using early childhood because we think it uh, indicates a much higher level of service. If you ask somebody who is uh, credentialed and degreed in that field, they do not want to be called a daycare worker because they say they aren't taking care of anybody's day. And, and it is surely not glorified sitting. Uh, but these are programs that use evidence-based uh, curriculum and use evidence-based discipline models uh, in order to make sure that the children are in the best possible environment. We are the largest provider for the state of North Carolina for the Division of Juvenile Justice for residential therapeutic alternatives to youth prison, and we don't want that job. Uh, we don't want to have those children in our care then, and the way to prevent that is by providing the best in early childhood experiences. If you want to know what children are going to do well academically in school through their adolescent years who are going to avoid drug use and involvement with the court system, it is somebody who birthed through age five has been raised in an environment in which there is high stimulus and low stress. And so that is what we provide. We provide individualized education. Each child gets the highest degree of uh, stimulus academically and then physically in our outdoor learning environments. We also are working with the parents to make sure there's consistent language used during the school day and at home in the evenings. And we also want to make sure that it's a low stress environment for them and that there is a routine and that everything is predictable. The importance yeah, of it yeah. can't be overstated. We had a guest on our program years ago, and unfortunately, I can't quite remember who the guest was, but he, uh, he was dealing with education. Uh, and uh, he made a comment that I has stuck with me through the years. And he said, there's one common denominator between all of the kids that start school, whether it's in an early childhood program or the first grade, K through 12, whatever. He said that, uh, he said, there's one common denominator. On the first day of class, they're all excited and all interested. And he said, yeah. then you start losing them one at a time. Uh and uh, that's, uh, he said, that's why it's so important to understand that each child is an individual and so different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when my son uh, 
was in kindergarten, the first couple of weeks of kindergarten. It seemed that he came home with a different story each day about a particularly uh, egregious behavior uh, by one classmate. And it was just one classmate who kept acting out and doing things that seemed to us to just be crazy. And so I asked my son, my son, five years old at the time, I believe, why do you think he behaves like that? And my son just shrugged and said, well, he just doesn't know the rules. And it was such a matter of fact statement, but it was a child who had not been um, disciplined at home, a child who had not been in an early childhood program anywhere else. And such basic things as maintaining body space and keeping your hands to yourself and taking no for an answer and saying please and thank you. That child had not had any kind of training at all. And my son's answer is simplistic, but true, just did not know how to govern himself and didn't know the rules. And this is one of the things that the Methodist Home for Children works on is because in many cases, the problem is not with the child, but with the parents. Absolutely. And as people, when COVID is emerging and then uh, continuing in the first few months are asking us, how is it that you can stay open and why are you staying open? We were doing that for the safety of the children. And were we concerned about the safety of our uh, faculty? Certainly. But we know that many of the children we serve uh, are coming from homes where their greatest time of risk uh, is going to be during the daytime. And that instances of uh, substance abuse and all kinds of of physical and verbal abuse escalate during times of economic stress. And we know that. And so that's one of the reasons why we've been committed to remaining open and to trying to care for all all that we possibly can. So uh, totally, uh, what is your total census of how many children that you are serving in an average year now in, in one way or another? And if you won't hold me to these statistics during this year of COVID, because who knows uh, when uh, we pick the cards up off the table at the end of that and do the counting, what that will look like. But it is not uncommon for us to serve about 1,600 children, youth, and their families uh, across all of our service array. And of course, there are, you know, many of the counties that uh, they're in North Carolina are large and, and have uh, uh, some forms of uh, programs in existence, but we have a number of counties that are small and have no programs whatsoever, and they're always looking for assistance. And this is one of the areas that the Methodist Home for Children has, has uh, been of great service to the state of North Carolina. It is, and we, going back far, as, as you indicated in time, had followed really the development of the Methodist Church, which in its origins with the circuit riders was concentrated heavily in rural areas. And so initially the bulk of the population that we served came from rural areas and it continues to be in the state of North Carolina, a place of great strength for us. And the disparity between urban and rural areas with regard to mental health, uh, substance substance affected services, and certainly program services for youth, the disparities cannot be overstated. They, they are just massive. How many counties do you work with? Again, I, I, I probably asked you a question that may uh, put you on the spot on. No, that, not at all, because the answer is uh, straightforward. We now, in an annual basis, serve children from every county. And, and since we began operating the psychological crisis and assessment centers uh, for the Division of Juvenile Justice, we're doing, we do intake from all across the state. We still are more heavily weighted in our service area because of foster care in home and early childhood in the eastern part of the state. 
But the answer is all 100 counties. Our guest is Bruce Stanley, and we'll be back to talk more about the Methodist Home for Children and the uh, problems of uh, uh, childhood development and so forth. And we'll do that right after these messages. When we get old, will you take care of me if I can't get around anymore? Of course. We'll find a way. Are you going to take care of me if I can't see anymore? I'll read to you every day. And if one of us gets Alzheimer's disease, what then? Call 1-800-437-2423 for a free booklet on caring for your loved ones from Alzheimer's Disease Research. 1-800-437-2423. Hi, everybody. I'm Susie Orman with an important message from the FDIC about keeping your money safe and sound. Recently, I got a letter from a woman who told me she took all of her money out of the bank and put it in a shoebox in her closet. What was she thinking? That's not a safe thing to do. You know what I told her? Put it back in the bank now. If your money is in an FDIC member bank and you stay within coverage limits, you have no reason to worry. You can't lose a penny no matter what. That's a lot safer than a shoebox, if you ask me. How can you make sure your money is totally FDIC protected? If I were you, I would want to know that. So here's what I want you to do. Go to myfdicinsurance.gov and click on Edie the Estimator and find out. That's Edie the Estimator at myfdicinsurance.gov. Go there today. Because the more you know, the safer your money. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Our guest this week is Bruce Stanley. He's been with us a number of times. He is the uh, president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children, which is a child advocacy organization which uh, works with uh, uh, with uh, families and children in uh, developing uh, and solving problems that uh, arise in the family and with the development of the children. Uh, one of the things, of course, we usually talk about is the continual problem with alcohol and drug abuse with youth. We, uh, in this period of time where we are so occupied with COVID-19, Many of the topics like that are being sort of pushed to the back burner, but it is nonetheless still a problem. Are we making any progress in that area, Bruce? Uh, are we? Are, is the problem abating somewhat? Don, I wish I could say that we were making some progress, but the challenges continue. One of the fascinating things to observe, and if you were doing this meta-analysis, but it comes with a high human cost uh, when you're doing that analysis, is that we know that in times of economic stress, incidences of abuse and neglect increase. And at the same time that we know that statistically and historically, since COVID-19 and the shutdown has occurred, the reporting to Child Protective Services has declined nationwide, and it's true also for North Carolina, by over 30%. And the reason is, is that you don't have outside eyes and ears to facilitate in that process. Uh, the children are not being seen by their public school teachers, who often are the ones who are going to report and uh, signify and be the first to notice that there's something terribly wrong in a, in a situation that needs to be remedied. So with more children uh, remaining at home for longer periods of time, we know that there are children who have to be suffering and who are in circumstances that are far from ideal. The most vulnerable of the early childhood program or children are part of the state's more at four and are eligible services there. 
And these are children who are coming from homes where there's low or no literacy and where they are at or below the poverty level. And Wake County had 700 fewer applications this academic year for the more for program than they did the year before. We don't have 700 fewer children who need that service. We have 700 applications that are not being submitted because people are either unable to go to work and to leave their home, or they are afraid that their child is going to contract COVID-19 while they're out in community. And so that is a, um, a very real circumstance. With regard to alcohol. A number of years ago, we changed the uh, drinking age from 18 to 21. Uh, has that, uh, first of all, what's your opinion about what is the proper age? And secondly, has that change had any effect whatsoever or has actually the problem become even worse? Uh, and I'm going to give this a, as a personal opinion and that I think that the change in the age from uh, 18 to 21 uh, has probably had a helpful impact some for high school seniors who may not have the easy availability that they had at that point in time. I think that beyond that senior year in high school, and particularly for students who are in a college environment, I think it's detrimental because it encourages binge drinking. And youth are going to have access to the product, whether the age is 18 or 21, and we ought not to be naive about that. And so if they are attending a, a group event, whether that would be a football game if one gets held again, uh, or whether that simply uh, would be a party at somebody's residence, uh, they will binge drink and um, load up in advance. And so I think it has done uh, next to nothing uh, to solve the problem. And, and in fact, is uh, probably, I think, not the healthiest thing for our society at large. For those, who, the, might, for those who might not be totally familiar with the term binge drinking, Essentially, uh, binge drinking involves those students who are, are those uh, kids, not necessarily students, who are drinking for the sole purpose of getting drunk. Yes, and they're packing in an evening's worth of intoxication in a uh, 30, uh, maybe a 60-minute period. And it is a great danger to their health and, and to them physically as well as mentally. One of the things I learned on uh, recently, and I wouldn't want to be held to these statistics exactly uh, because they aren't in front of me, but when COVID-19 came and bars and restaurants were closed, the county commissioners were looking at their revenues and afraid that they were going to face a real shortfall from the ABC commissions. And in Wake County, as in most counties, at the end of the fiscal year, which occurs the end of June, there will be a payment from the ABC commission to the county commissioners of uh, what we would say excess profits or overage. And the bulk of those funds are dedicated to treatment programs. In Wake County, it might be Interact, um, it might be uh, Healing Transitions, places we would all as a community agree they need to go. Last several years, that those dollars have averaged about $4 million uh, paid out from ABC to the county commissioners. But not only did those dollars not decline, they skyrocketed. The single day sales record for the ABC stores almost always is on a year by year basis, New Year's Eve. Most people would say, well, of course. Well, the first several days of the COVID-19 shutdown, the ABC stores set consecutive new daily records. And the amount that was paid to the Wake County commissioners this year was not $4 million, but the amount was in excess of $11 million. 
and you just stop and think about that being a change that occurred from March through June, uh, through June 30th, that is a massive amount of alcohol that was consumed. Bruce, does it bother you? I mean, you know, we, we uh, all bemoan the loss of the information that was formally provided by the daily newspapers of this country. Most of the daily newspapers have become a skeleton of what they once were. It is a tragedy. That kind of data that you just reported used to be reported and people wouldn't know it. But now there's no uh, way to get that kind of information out. I'm glad you brought it up because uh, certainly I didn't know that. And uh, uh, it's a shame that uh, our our sources of news are such that uh, important facts like that just don't get reported anymore. And it it, it is an aspect of of this uh, COVID crisis. you see joked about on T-shirts and other things, um, but it is an aspect that has not really been considered, I think, when you're talking about the totality of the public health crisis we're facing. For years, we have uh, pondered how do we educate young people about the dangers of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and so forth, and yet after all these years, I don't know that we are making any progress there. What what suggestions do you have to improve our methods of educating young people about the dangers of alcohol and drug abuse? I think that we do need to dedicate a whole lot more dollars toward treatment. And we also uh, need to be aware of what does and does not work. The Just Say No was a wonderful initiative uh, begun in the 80s and was very well intentioned. But despite the fact that we had uh, police officers and law enforcement trained and available to almost every public school uh, all across the United States of America, we know after a large number of years and extensive research that that problem had exactly zero impact. And it was a feel-good program. And everybody would like to think something as profound as substance abuse, you could just say no and the problem will go away, but it had zero impact and and did not make a difference. I think we need some rationality in and around the laws. I think that marijuana, which is legal now in many states, uh, is eventually going to be legalized in all states and changed at the federal level. And I think when we uh, restore um, some rationality to how we treat people who are involved with the smoking of pot, I think that will go a long way to helping solve some of the problem. It'll one thing, it'll help us reduce our prison populations, but it'll also help prevent cynicism in young people who are seeing marijuana classified, you know, as the same sort of drug as cocaine or heroin or fentanyl. And they have a, a sip of a beer and a toke on a joint and think, well, those are equivalent. And I and they see that it's hypocritical and it's just wrong. And I think we need to make progress in and around the reform of marijuana laws nationwide. Well, clearly that's uh, been a controversial issue for years. And, and uh, as you said, a number of states have, have, have changed and legalized and, and have been successful. Yeah, and it is controversial. And I've got a number of people, including some of my own staff, uh, who will disagree with me vehemently uh, with regard to the uh, legalization. But I think it's important. And I think it's important, important too, uh, because we as a culture are now trying to reckon with the issue of uh, racial and ethnic disparities and uh, the sentencing and the arrests that are made 
in and around uh, marijuana possession or one place where that shows up greatly and where we can have an immediate impact. We talk about uh, problems of alcohol and drug abuse with the youth, but you deal so often with the alcohol and drug abuse with the parents of the youth. That, that would be correct. And um, where the end up, we're the ones who frequently end up uh, with the children and 80% of those uh, 1600 children, youth and their families that we deal with, that's our estimate, but it's pretty close and we do a lot of testing, but 80% of them, the youth and the children come from homes where there's substance abuse, uh, either their own or the parents and not um, uncommon that it would be both. And so while we are primarily targeted on children, youth, and their families, we do have services that work with adults. And one of the places where we've done that uh, for a long period of time would be New Hanover County. And if you've got uh, parents whose substance abuse issues have caused their children to be removed from them, uh, we're working to help them achieve sobriety. And one of my favorite stories was a witness by a family who had achieved that. Uh, Mom and dad both had issues. Both had gone to prison, one for forging prescriptions, the other one for driving with the children in their car seats while they were intoxicated. And the mom talked about how she came to hate our staff person because every evening at the 645, she would look out the, her window and our staff person was parked out in front, making sure that mom was going to drive to her NA meeting that night. And she said, but if she hadn't been parked out that front, uh, I wouldn't have made those meetings and I wouldn't have been where I am today. And, and so we do deal with that on a regular basis. Our guest is Bruce Stanley, and we'll be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. This is nice. I was hoping you'd like it. It's my special recipe. I'm sorry, sir, but it appears as though your credit card has been declined. Did everyone hear that? This person right here, credit card, declined. Oh. If we can please have an awkward silence the next 10 seconds. Whoa, what's with the megaphone? Just trying to properly illustrate your embarrassment and humiliation to the public, sir. What? If everyone could start mumbling and shaking their heads. Nice, ma'am, I like that with the pointing. Mm. He's shaking like a leaf. Good job. Hey, buddy, please. I'm with a date here. Look, so I'm late on a few payments. I'll make it up next month. Promise. Mm -hmm. He promises to pay it all back next month. Can we have an aww? aww? Don't worry, Adam. It happens to everybody. This has no effect on our date whatsoever. Really? Yes, really. There just won't be another one. See ya. And she's off. Wait, come back. I have other cards. I have other restaurants. Putting more on your card than you can afford to spend can lead to even bigger problems, like public humiliation. Don't let your credit put you in a bad place. Go to controlyourcredit.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Treasury and the Ad Council. I'm not staying home tonight. I'm at school all day. If they want me to do the work, give it to me while I'm at school. This guy has me coming to work 10 hours a day. So what if I didn't finish school? That doesn't mean he can work me like a dog. Hey, man, I need a few bucks. My car's busted and I need some cash. Hello? Hello? Every decision you make has a benefit or consequence. Make the right choices today and be ready for the challenges tomorrow. This message is brought to you by the United States Air Force. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back again with Bruce Stanley, the president and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children, which is a, a program that or an organization that treats and prevents uh, abuse to children, helps them in childhood development, works with families. Uh, had, of course, as we said before, had its roots as an orphanage, no longer does that, works with uh, foster care. And by the way, we, we, we mentioned early on in foster care that uh, a, a lot of people, of course, are interested in becoming foster parents 
you have to be licensed for that and you have to receive training. If there are those who are interested in that, how does that process work, Bruce? Well, you would contract or contact a licensing entity and Methodist Home for Children will be one. Uh, we can be easily reached online uh, at our agency's initials. It would be our website address, mhfc.org. That's mhfc for Methodist Home for Children.org. The classes are known by the acronym MAP, and they are mandated and guided by the state. The minimum requirement would be 55 hours, and they are thorough. They would uh, cover bloodborne pathogen training and how to wash your hands and CPR, and then we enhance that training uh, by teaching parents uh, anger management techniques and how to do behavioral modification interventions. And at the uh, end of that time, after licensure, uh, then you've got an opportunity to enter into the service. One of the things that's always interesting uh, that you uh, always bring to this program and other uh, places where I've heard you speak is when you tell the stories of life-changing experiences uh, of youth and uh, young adults, as, for that matter. Uh, what are some good examples of the results of uh, that are so positive that if change actually changed lives that our listeners would be interested in hearing. Um, one of the stories that uh, I would tell uh, out of foster care is that we even occasionally do informal foster care. And as a faith-based agency that is historically and uh, proudly related to the United Methodist Church, uh, we will occasionally be, be contacted by a pastor and, uh, and ask if we can provide aid and support. And we had a case in which we were contacted by a clergy person and there were two teenage girls and uh, someone had come home from school and found that their son had um, the ability to cook. And they had not previously known that because when mom arrived home from work, the son had two strangers who were seated at the kitchen table and said that they uh, were rather unkempt. They clearly were hungry. The son knew that they had been getting bullied when they had just come to the school and only, only been there for a couple of weeks. He felt sorry for them and invited them into the house. They weren't entirely certain what to do, uh, but they called and talked to the pastor and the pastor called Methodist Home for Children. And we sent one of our caseworkers and the family that had hosted them initially had gone ahead and taken them to Target and bought them bath and body wash and as well as clothing and underwear, because these children were living really uh, house to house, surfing on people's couches because their mom was a substance addict and, and had nowhere to go and no possessions of their own. Uh, the family decided that it was not wise uh, to have their teenage son and these teenage girls in the same residence together, uh, which is probably a very good decision. And so they went to another place to stay and were fostered uh, in an informal foster placement for a number of years and have uh, just flourished and done marvelously. Uh, they were baptized and uh, welcomed into membership in the church. Uh, both of them, both of the girls uh, excelled educationally, started out going to community college. One of them has already finished undergrad and is, uh, and is approaching graduate school. The second one uh, is in undergraduate now and things could not have been better. And, and if you were to ask them uh, who their mother was, uh, they would tell you that the correct name of their biological parent. Uh, but if you were to ask them who mom was, that's a very different person. And mom is the one whom they hold and embrace and hug and whom they confide and with whom they talk and share. And mom would be their foster parent. 
And that's a case that uh, we're currently celebrating and living with. And the biological mom tragically uh, OD'd and died. And, and so they really are left uh, with a forever family. And these foster parents are going to be their parents forever. You mentioned uh, college. You have quite a number of cases where you have worked with uh, kids all the way through high school and then uh, aided and assisted in getting college degrees. And of course, these people, uh, it, it's so interesting what it does to the economy, because not only are they not only no longer wards of the state or costly to the state, but now they are uh, taxpaying and contributing citizens. And, and we have a program that uh, is rare. I won't say it's unique because there are a few other agencies that do it, but it's quite uncommon. And it is the Hackley Education and Learning Program, or HELP, as we call it. And anyone who has been in the care of Methodist Home in foster care, anyone who's been adopted, anyone who has been in one of our residential facilities, we guarantee that we will pay uh, for at least four years of college. And if you can keep a B average, we will also pay for your master's degree. Uh, now, the education funds are broadly construed. Uh, we've got some who've got no desire to obtain a four-year degree. And so they're off to get the, a degree in marine diesel mechanics uh, or perhaps get training in HVAC or maybe go to a medical college in order to become a dental hygienist. And so the funds are available to be used for that as well. But it is a, an awfully important part of what we do. And when I say we have a lifetime commitment, we had somebody who went into the program at age 47. And he had been in the program uh, with Methodist Home when he was 15 and did not come back in order to go to college until he was 47 years of age. And statistically, a child who's been raised through age 18 in the foster care system by age 21 is five times more likely to have been in a jail cell or in a homeless shelter than in a college classroom. So it is a remarkable intervention that we're able to provide. Bruce, you deal with uh, uh, organizations similar to this all across the country, and uh, you then have knowledge of how other states are handling it. On the whole, how would you rate North Carolina in the way that our government has worked with you and with other organizations similar to you? And, the overall juvenile justice uh, effort that we make, how would you rate North Carolina's effort? I, I would rate it at the top. And, and I would do that not just simply as part of the provider community, but I think I would do that uh, really objectively. Among the leading researchers uh, in the nation, is somebody now retired from the federal office, uh, OJJDP, Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, Washington, D.C., and that would be Buddy Howe. And Buddy chose no doubt wisely, to retire down at Pinehurst and, uh, and continues to be somebody who's celebrated and respected in the field, somebody who has published a tremendous amount. And the, the meta-analysis that, meta that he has done academically uh, in partnership with Mark Lipsky from Vanderbilt uh, indicates that the outcomes that North Carolina has gotten are really rare indeed. Uh, in 1999, for instance, there were about 1,400 children a day in our youth prisons. And with the population growth that we've had in our state, which has been significant, we have decreased that number. And that on a given day now, there are only about 250 youth uh, in the state who are in one of our youth development centers. And so we have had a reduction in the amount of crime and an increase in the amount of therapeutic alternatives. And I think Secretary Eric Hooks at DPS and Deputy Secretary uh, for Juvenile Justice, William Lassiter, 
have done a tremendous job. And, um, and Billy Lassiter, there ought to be a statue erected to him somewhere in the state of North Carolina uh, for his vision and for how he has worked. I also think the aforementioned uh, NC pre-K program and its predecessor, Moore Four, have had a tremendous impact. And from 1999 to now, it was a long haul, but that's about the amount of time for a preschooler to start and get through uh, age 18 and through high school. And the development of that program in the late 90s and the continued funding of the uh, NC pre-K program as we move forward, those have had a tremendous impact on juvenile justice also. And I, I think North Carolina has a great story to tell and probably doesn't celebrate itself enough. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's absolutely true. Uh, when you talk with other people from out of state, they look to North Carolina, and yet I don't think the North Carolinians realize uh, as much with pride as they should on just what we've done. And, and that goes back uh, through several administrations, both Republican and Democratic administrations, because uh, those programs have been out around now for uh, uh, over 30 years, and they are beginning to uh, really make an impact. And We'll never know the end result because we'll never know what the opposite would have been had those programs not been around. Oh, that, that's exactly right. And uh, early on in my tenure at Methodist Home, I had an opportunity to meet with uh, now retired uh, District Attorney Forsyth County, Thomas Keith. And uh, District Attorney Keith made a remark to me that he had taken it upon himself that every morning that he would go through the Forsyth County Detention Center and take a tour. And he said it occurred to him as he was taking that uh, tour every Monday morning that I am looking at the same people. And he said, I don't mean the same type of people. I mean, I literally am looking at the same people. And he said, if we are supposed to have a department of corrections, and if this process is supposed to be about intervention and putting people on a new path, he said it was real clear to him that they weren't doing their job. And he said I, that he had to make the transition and he had to change his mindset and that he had always run for office, that he was going to be tough on crime. And he said, I realized that you have to be smart on crime. That being tough on crime doesn't cut it. Well, you know, we, we often forget that, that word is so important because we, we, we think of the Department of Corrections as running prisons. The truth of the matter is the word correction is, is the key word. Yes. And in the, and in the youth world, uh, those are youth development centers. And uh, what we're trying to develop are people who are not, as you had indicated earlier, wards of the state and people who are really a, a drain on our community. But they're people who develop in ways that are good and of God and uh, understand the importance of becoming job holders and people who are well-educated and members of strong families and taxpaying citizens instead. Our guest is Bruce Stanley. He's the president and chief executive officer of the Methodist Home for Children, frequent guest on our program, and we'll be back with one final segment here on Carolina Newsmakers right after these messages. Are you looking for a way to give back to your community? If so, your local Guardian Ad Litem office needs your help. The North Carolina Guardian Ad Litem program is celebrating its 25th anniversary of being a voice for children who are victims of child abuse and neglect. Volunteer today to become a trained, independent advocate to represent the best interests of abused and neglected children in court proceedings. As a Guardian Ad Litem volunteer, you will also help work toward ensuring that each child is placed in a safe, permanent home, what every child needs. The Guardian Ad Litem program needs volunteers. If you have just a few hours each month to make a difference, please don't wait. 
Call 1-800-982-4041 or visit ncgal.org. Volunteer for the Guardian Ad Litem Program. Be the voice for a child. You've got your shades on, do you? So cool, so hip, so sheltered by frames of UV protection to show the world you are a force. But did you also know by wearing sunglasses you're doing your eyes a favor? That's right. Sunglasses help avoid overexposure to the sun, which can produce red eyes, a feeling of grittiness, even excessive tearing. But you, oh master of the incognito, are taking care of your eyes without even knowing it. For more easy ways to keep keeping your eyes healthy, see your optometrist or visit AOA.org. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Again, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week, a frequent guest on our program, Bruce Stanley, who's the head of the Methodist Home for Children, a job he has been in now for uh, nearly 14 years uh, and uh, uh, has become really an authority on the problems of youth, uh, the family, and, uh, of course, the entire program of the Methodist Home for Children deals not only with young people, but with the family. And they have so many interesting programs serving the entire state. Bruce, let's just, uh, I don't know, begin this segment with a question of uh, what's going on as good and bad in this whole area? What are the problems that you're looking at right now? Uh, And you can roll into that, this whole uh, uh, idea of the economy, I mean, the uh, situation we're in with COVID-19. What... uh, what do you look at as you come to work each day as your major problems? Um, one of the things, that Don, that I would say we recognize as a huge challenge is the interruption of schooling. And uh, we know that having people uh, aggregated uh, increase health risk. Uh, but we also know, particularly for children who are in early childhood programs, that they have never have an opportunity to get that year back. Uh, the stopping and starting of uh, institutions of higher learning is challenging and some colleges and universities have decided that they were going to stop for a whole semester or split a year and invite freshmen one semester, sophomores the next. And if you're 18 or 19, that's uh, inconvenient. It may be difficult, but it doesn't necessarily need to be life changing and altering for you. But when you are three years of age, four years of age, five years of age, your brain is still in formation physically. And it's not just that you are developing intellectually, emotionally, and socially, but you're developing uh, physically. And you don't ever get a chance to get that year back. And to take a child who's uh, that young and who has been in a well-developed program and have that interrupted, that can have uh, some very difficult consequences and ones that are going to be out there for a long period of time. And we know that's the case. We also know that there's families that are under tremendous stress. Uh, both from job loss as well as from uh, increase uh, in alcohol use and other substances. A lot of those uh, problems have yet to present themselves. And while people are remaining at home and not out in community, these things are not as well known and not as visible. Uh, They aren't being disclosed to clergy with congregations not meeting. Uh, Children aren't being seen at school. And so reporting of these instances has gone down in many cases. And we know that that is going to be a challenge that presents itself uh, when the light of day begins to shine uh, in some of these terribly dark circumstances and situations. We also know, and this is a plea for funding, and this is going to be a plea to your audience as well as to the state and to all who have vested interest in it, because it is our community. 
we know that tax revenues uh, are going to be way down and that people have been good about investing uh, in folks' futures and stepping up to the challenge with COVID immediately upon us. But over the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, uh, counties, cities, states are really going to be hurting and facing some significant revenue shortfalls. And the citizens are, are going to have to step up uh, in order to provide for those who have the least. As you look over the last years, what programs have been the most effective of, of keeping youth out of trouble, uh, gangs and bullying and that sort of thing? Um, there is something that is fairly new. Uh, it has been led, I think, in the state of North Carolina by Judge Jay Corbining uh, from New Hanover County, and that is the School Justice Partnership. And it is part of the Raise the Age initiative that the legislature adopted wonderfully. And so North Carolina now does not regard 17 and 18 year olds as adults and does not put them in adult detention or in the adult jails, but they are in youth uh, detention facilities instead. But the School Justice Partnership is an attempt to stop uh, what has become a pipeline of school children uh, entering into the juvenile justice system. Uh, after Columbine, uh, there was a hue and cry across the country for better school safety. And so school resource officers uh, became standard and were placed in many, uh, uh, if not most of the public schools in the state of North Carolina. And what happened was an unintended drift toward looking at the school resource officer as the chief disciplinarian in the school. And the problem that you run into there is if a school resource officer is trained as a policeman, sees one young person push another one so that it knocks them back and they stumble or fall, they are supposed to arrest them. And that charge is called simple affray. And if youth who currently appear uh, in the court system, the most common charge is simple affray. And so this school justice partnership is an attempt by the judiciary to work with law enforcement and to work with the school system to prevent the school resource officers from being the ones who are called in to be disciplinarians. And in cases where they do uh, make a referral to the juvenile justice system. It's an attempt to find some form of diversion so that they don't get into the system. And because once you enter into it, that increases greatly your likelihood that you're going to have another encounter with it. But, but that, I think, has been something that has been awfully important. And I would also say that family drug courts, um, which are unevenly applied across the state of North Carolina, have great potential. And it is something that a family elects to do. So they make their drug problems known to the courts. And so they're making themselves vulnerable. But with that vulnerability, they are taking on accountability. And so they've got an opportunity to receive services and to get treatment necessary so that they can preserve their family unit. But I think those are a couple of things uh, that are fairly fresh in North Carolina that uh, really are exciting and have great, got a great opportunity to move us forward. You brought this up earlier that the, because the public schools are not in full session with and the contacts that teachers have with students is not there every day, uh, teachers were often a very good source when they would see a problem, they could report it. Now that that's not going on and might not be going on for some time, uh, how important it is for neighbors and other casual observers, other family members to report situations of abuse and to whom should they report them? Yeah, that, and that is important. And most citizens would not realize this, but every citizen in the state of North Carolina is required that if they see and or suspect an incidence of child abuse, 
they're required to report it. And it is important for people to do that. And the place to go uh, is uh, through the county level and Department of Ser so Social Services all have uh, CPS, which is Child Protective Services. And that is where to go and to make that known. Well, it's so important for everyone to, to uh, keep an eye out and be sure that, uh, that any, uh, any apparent abuse is reported because if it looks bad, it probably is. Yeah, and, and the, the general rule is trust your gut. People can be wrong, um, but generally by the time you see something manifesting itself out in public, the problem has presented itself in private and in worse fashion. Bruce, uh, we've got just about uh, 30 seconds for you to tell people how to get in touch with the Methodist Home for Children, how to find out more about your programs, and how, uh, in the case of need, to ask for that uh, service. That, and we would love to hear from you. Um, our website is mhfc.org. That's the agency's initials, methodisthomeforchildren.org. Uh, we would encourage you to uh, follow us on Facebook. Uh, we are also out in Twitter and are always trying to spread the word. And uh, it's simplest and the easiest thing to do, uh, perhaps, is to send us an email, whether you're interested in becoming a foster parent uh, whether you want to simply become uh, more in, interested and more educated about what services are happening in North Carolina, uh, we're happy to uh, help you with that. And of course, we're always happy to and teach people and talk to people about how it is that they can give and support us financially and run alongside this wonderful ministry. Our guest has been Bruce Stanley, and uh, we appreciate your time. We'll be back again next week with another interesting guest. Jason Kong, our producer, will provide for us. We will look forward to meeting you then. You can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com for more information. Have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time for Carolina Newsmakers.